Now, we're just going to be beginning chapter 2 of John's Gospel. Again, John's Gospel is so rich that we could spend a lot of time on each of these chapters. So the question I have to discern is how deep to go with this. In the last part of chapter 1, in verse 50, Jesus said to Nathanael, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You shall see greater things than these. The you, Y-O-U, is plural, which means you all. That's us included. What are these greater things? It begins in chapter 2. The greater things will begin with these signs. And there are seven. This is called the book of signs, the part we're in right now. And these signs are delivered by John in order to point us to the destination he wants us to get to, which is an understanding that Jesus is divine and offers us salvation. Signs point us to this end goal. When you get to a sign, let's say you're going down 401 or 402 here, and you get a sign saying London 60 miles. You don't stop at that sign and say, we're here. You let the sign point you to the next sign, which says London 30 kilometers. And you keep following the signs until you get to the destination. That's what John's going to do here. He's going to have seven signs, and they all point to Jesus as being divine and offering us salvation. So what I'm going to do, since this is so rich, is just read the first 11 verses of chapter 2, then we'll go back over it and just parse it out. On the third day, there was a marriage at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the marriage with his disciples. When the wine failed, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, O woman, what have you to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now six stone jars were standing there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to them, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them to the brim. He said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the steward of the feast. So they took it. When the steward of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the steward of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first, and when men have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Now let's go back to those first three words on the third day. Verse 1. Remember, from last time, I indicated that John is deliberately presenting this new creation. And he's going to present the first week of Jesus' ministry, day by day. So if you remember, in chapter 1, verse 19, was the first day. And then in verse 29, where it says the next day, 
That's day two. In verse 35, it says the next day, that's day three. And in verse 43, again, the next day, that is day four. That's all in chapter one. Now, in chapter two, it says on the third day. So what's going on here? Well, you've got to count the three days and tack it onto the four, which means we're on the seventh day. That's what the church fathers and the scholars conclude. So he jumps from day four to the seventh day, John does. You've got day one, two, three, and four, and then day seven. Now, why would John do that? Because the seventh day was the climax of the first week of creation. And it's going to be the climax of the new creation and the beginning of the first sign, the first miracle. Okay? So all he wants you to remember or to get here is that Jesus is beginning a whole new creation with himself. Notice how it begins here. There's a marriage at Cana. As soon as you hear the word marriage, you've got to go back into the Old Testament and say, well, what was the spiritual sense of marriage in the Old Testament that God wanted Israel to understand? Who would be the bridegroom in the Old Testament? And who would be the bride? Right, the people of Israel would be the bride, and then way in the back, you probably were going to say, God is the bridegroom. Yeah. So if you look at the book of Hosea, it's one of the minor prophets. That whole book is about the marriage between God and his people. It's repeated, though, again and again in the Old Testament. And now, remember, the New Testament fulfills the Old. So that prophetic utterance throughout the Old Testament that God wants to marry his people is going to be fulfilled in Christ. Christ tells us in the New Testament, he is the bridegroom and the church is the bride. That's what we have to have in, in the background when we're reading this wedding feast at Cana. Notice who's there. It doesn't say that Jesus is there with his disciples. First of all, it says Mary is there, the mother of Jesus. She was there first. She's the primary actor in this first sign. She initiates everything. This new creation, well, what was at the, the heart of the old creation? We had Adam and Eve. Eve prompted Adam to eat the fruit, and Adam ate, and the fall was there. Now we have the new Eve, which is Mary, who's going to be prompting the new Adam, Jesus, to begin the whole process of redemption, of turning the original sin around and bringing in a, this whole new creation of grace. That's what's at the heart of this. And that's what John sees. He doesn't flat out tell us, but it's there. And church fathers saw it immediately. Which is why when Mary brings this situation to Jesus, saying they have no wine, Jesus says to her, Oh, woman, what have you to do with me? Now, no son calls his mother woman. What's really happening here is that Mary is the new Eve. Now, we've got to go back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. 
This is after the fall. Adam and Eve had eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, even though they were commanded not to. So what does God do? You know, he could have just wiped everything out and said, okay, I'll have to start again. But he doesn't. In fact, he announces the good news. The first announcing of the gospel is right here. And there's a big word for it called proto, which means first, evangelium, which is the gospel. So proto-evangelium is right in, God, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. It's the first announcement of the good news. So God had this in mind from the beginning. As soon as the fall happened, God got to work. And he brings before him the serpent and Adam and Eve. And then he starts speaking. I will put enmity between you, he's addressing the serpent, and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will strike at your head while you strike at his heel. This is what John has in mind when he's recounting this scene at the marriage feast at Cana and what Jesus is doing when he calls his mother woman. Yes, so the question was, is this the first announcement of the good news? And the answer is yes. Right here at the beginning, the very first week of the new creation, Jesus brings us back to the fall and says to his mother Mary, woman, what's that between you and me? Which is an invitation for Mary to initiate the new creation, the redemption. Now, in verse 3, it says, when the wine failed, a lot of significance in that little statement because in the Old Testament there were many prophetic verses saying that when the Messiah would come there would be an overflowing amount of wine. It would be dripping off mountains, flowing down streams. There would be such an abundance of wine because wine in the Old Testament represents joy. And the prophets said the joy of the Messiah will be symbolized or evident when this new wine becomes very abundant. So you have to have that background as well. You have to know those prophetic texts. So when Mary says they have no wine, what's being referred to is that the wine of the Old Testament, which would be the whole dispensation of the law, <laughs> the animal sacrifices, you had to shed all this blood in order to repent of your sins, the wine of the Old Testament, that whole sacrificial system of sacrificing animals has dried up. And the joy of the Old Testament has dried up. Why? Because the, the Israelites, the Jews, are in captivity. The Romans are dominating them. And they've been dominated by one conqueror after another. And now the Romans are the sort of quintessential conqueror. So the Old Testament has dried up. Jesus says to her, O oh, woman, what have you to do with me? That's a prompting, an invitation. And he says, my hour has not yet come. Now this is another important theme, the hour. Ultimately, the hour refers to the hour of Jesus' passion and death. It also refers to the hour of the liturgy, of the Mass. So when Jesus is going to change water into wine, that is a hint, a prefiguring, a preparation for the Last Supper when he changes wine into his blood, which is going to be celebrated every time we have Mass.
Now, let's just focus on Mary for a second here. Mary is the new Eve. She's prompting the new Adam to begin the recreation. But just on a human level, she's the one who notices that this young couple have run out of wine. And this could be a very embarrassing situation, devastating for them. She notices. Nobody else does. She notices. She could have said, this is not my party. <laughs> if you invited me to plan it, we wouldn't be in this situation. But you didn't. She says none of that. She doesn't say anything except she goes to Jesus and says they run out of wine. This is typical of Mary being a servant who gets involved, who acts, who is an advocate, which is why the church has that title for Mary. That one of the titles of Mary is advocate. She advocates for this young couple who are going to have a devastating day unless this is corrected. And she is a mediator because she is the one who's mediating between a devastating situation and a glorious situation. Because, as we know, what happens is the bridegroom is congratulated by the steward for saving the best wine to the end. He now is center stage when he had nothing to do with this. <laughs> That's what Mary does. But more than that, remember when I said last time that John uses a framing technique, a literary device called framing. If he wants to emphasize a point, but he doesn't want to keep repeating it, he mentions it right at the beginning of his gospel and then again at the end, with the implication that everything in between is related. And that's what he did with the first verse in the prologue, where he wanted to emphasize the divinity of Christ, so he said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then at the end, you have Doubting Thomas standing up and saying to Jesus, my Lord and my God. Well, there's another frame that happens right here in chapter 2. Mary is singled out. She is the initiator. And we don't really hear much of her throughout the rest of the Gospel until the end, from the cross. He says, Woman, behold your son. He calls Mary woman again. And there's the frame. So when our non-Catholic brothers and sisters say, there's just nothing in the scriptures to indicate Mary is to be so highly honored, why do you do this? This is the answer right here. No, they don't name the couple very deliberately because they're in the background. Yeah, good question, and scholars have debated that, and they think that there was probably some connection because Mary is invited first. She probably drags her son along so that her extended family can actually start being saved. There's a whole, again, I don't want to go too deeply into this, but if you understand the Old Testament, there's a whole preparation for Mary because we have certain women in the Old Testament who do exactly that. When Israel is attacked by her enemies, often it's a woman who rises up and leads an army to ultimately crush the head of either the general or someone like that who represents Satan. In the book of Judges, Deborah certainly, I was thinking of Jael, because what does Jael do? She drives a tent peg 
through the temple of the commander of the Canaanite army, Sisera. Sisera has gone into the tent of Jael looking for rest. Jael is very accommodating, gives him milk because he's thirsty. He falls asleep. She drives a tent peg through his head and is celebrated as this great hero of Israel. It's really symbolic of what Mary is going to do, fulfilling the Proto-Evangelium, where God says that through the woman, the head of Satan will be crushed. We also have Judith. In the book of Judith, she does something very similar to Holofernes, who's the general. Toward the end of the book, she makes her way into his tent. He is drunk, falls asleep, and she cuts his head off. Let's go back to Judges chapter 6. I'll just read you the verse. Once Jael has drove the tent peg through the head of Sisera, there's a big celebration, and I'm going to quote verse 24 of Judges 6. Blessed among women be Jael. Blessed among tent-dwelling women. That verse, blessed among women be Jael. And that's what Mary says in her Magnificat. That's a deliberate preparation in the Old Testament for this woman who will be the initiator of Satan being crushed. In Judith, this is after Judith has cut off the head of Philophanes, chapter 13, verse 18. This is the leader of the Israelites. Then Uzziah said to her, Blessed are you, daughter, by the Most High God above all the women on earth and blessed be the Lord God. So I just bring this to your attention because it's all in the background of this wedding feast and this great event that Mary is initiating. She is the woman mentioned in Genesis chapter 3, 15. Didn't Mary continue the work of the apostles? We're not given a lot of detail of what Mary did afterwards. In the Acts of the Apostles, we know she was in the upper room praying before Pentecost with the Apostles. So she was definitely active in her prayer, and it was through that prayer in the upper room the Holy Spirit then came down Pentecost. So she was definitely involved in that respect. We know that John, who is writing this Gospel, lived with Mary in Ephesus after the death of Jesus because Jesus gave Mary to John. Okay. Now, there's a whole other thing at the background here, and I hate to go in so much detail, but unless we understand this Old Testament background, this marriage feast doesn't really carry the, the weight that it should. There's a prophetic text in Isaiah, chapter 25, which outlines what's known as the Messianic Banquet. All the Jews knew it. They were waiting for it. I'm going to quote just a couple of verses in Isaiah, chapter 24. This is verses 7, 9, and 11. The wine mourns, the vine languishes, all the merry-hearted sigh. No more do they drink wine with singing. There is an outcry in the streets for lack of wine. All joy has reached its eventide. The gladness of the earth is banished. In response to that lament, we have this prophetic text. It's Isaiah chapter 25, starting at verse 6. This is what God says through the prophet Isaiah. 
On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will provide for all peoples a feast of rich foods and choice wines, juicy, rich food and pure choice wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the veil that veils all peoples, the web that is woven over all nations. He will destroy death forever. The Lord God will wipe away the tears from all faces. The reproach of his people he will remove from the whole earth, for the Lord has spoken. This was understood that when the Messiah comes, the Messianic feast will begin. And it will be this rich feast of fine wines and foods. Now, there's a few characteristics here. First of all, it's the Lord that's speaking. And the Lord here is Yahweh. The one who spoke from the burning bush in Exodus is speaking this word through the prophet Isaiah. He's speaking it to all people, not just Jews, Jews and Gentiles. And it's a sacrificial feast because it's not just wines, it's choice wines. And it's the fat of the food, which means those were the sacrificial foods that were offered in the temple in the Old Testament. This banquet will undo the effects of original sin because it will wipe out death forever. So those are the characteristics of this messianic feast. And this is what John is actually outlining. The messianic feast has begun. Because Jesus doesn't turn water into just any old wine. He turns it into the finest wine. And not just a few gallons, 180 gallons. And Jesus is the Lord. He is God in the flesh. This messianic feast that Jesus is initiating at the prompting of Mary is for everyone, not just the Jews. It will culminate in the great messianic feast of the Last Supper, though this is just a start of it, but it's leading to the Last Supper where Jesus changes wine into his blood, not just a little blood, but blood that will now flow abundantly every time we have Mass through all generations, throughout all the churches in the world. And it's a sacrifice. The Last Supper was a sacrificial banquet. It was a Passover. Jesus takes out the bread and the wine. He changes it into his body and blood. And then he commands his disciples, do this in memory of me. These are the first bishops. Jesus is taking this messianic feast that was prophesied in Isaiah and enacting it. And then he's going to make it a sacrament. Now, the bridegroom and the bride are not mentioned by name, but Jesus is mentioned, and Mary is mentioned. Jesus is the bridegroom in this wedding feast, because when the wine runs out, Mary doesn't go to the actual bridegroom, because in those days it was the bridegroom who was responsible for providing wine and making sure it didn't run out. She doesn't go to the actual bridegroom, she goes to Jesus. When the water is changed into wine, and the steward tastes it, he goes to the bridegroom and says, what a great guy you are. You saved the best wine till last. Because he doesn't know. He knows the law. He knows how weddings are done. And it's the bridegroom who's responsible for the wine. So he goes to the actual bridegroom. But actually it's Jesus who's the bridegroom. Because Jesus is the one who provided that wine. So what Mary is doing here, she was immaculately conceived. She had the gift of wisdom. She she was initiating the Messianic Feast 
She was initiating the marriage of Jesus to his people. She was initiating the redemption of humanity by this simple request, bringing the situation to Jesus and saying they have run out of wine. You mentioned the uh, redemption, what was the third one? She initiated the Messianic feast. She initiated the marriage of Jesus to his people, God to his people, and she initiates the whole redemption of humanity. Now, the other thing to mention about the Blessed Virgin Mary is she's the model disciple. The last words she says in the whole Gospel of John, do whatever he tells you, and she says that to us. There's also what's called a replacement theme going on here. The replacement theme means that whatever has been prophesied in the Old Testament is being perfected in the New. So we've got water being changed into the finest wine. The water is the purification water of the Old Testament. This was the Jewish way of preparing themselves to enter the temple and worship God. They would purify themselves through this water. Now that is being replaced by the new wine, which ultimately will become changed into the blood of Christ, and we are cleansed truly by the blood of Christ. Similar to, let's say, the manna in the Old Testament is now being replaced, as we'll see in John chapter 6, with the true manna which comes down from heaven, which is the Eucharist. Or this messianic banquet in Isaiah chapter 25, now being fulfilled by the wedding feast of Cana, but ultimately the Last Supper and the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. And as we will see if we actually get to this, which you probably won't do today, but the last part of this chapter deals with Jesus going into the temple and cleansing it, throwing out the money changers. There's a whole replacement theme there of the Old Testament sacrificial system and temple worship being changed and perfected in Jesus, who is the temple. A couple other points, there were six stone jars containing water. Six is the number of imperfection, pointing to the imperfection of the whole sacrificial system of the Old Testament, and that now is being changed into the perfect wine of redemption. Verse 12 of chapter 2. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brethren and his disciples, and there they stayed for a few days. Now here we get into the issue of brethren. Jesus had brothers. Mary is not the Blessed Virgin. That argument is made. But these brethren are never called the children of Mary, although Jesus himself is. Second, two names mentioned, James and Joseph, are sons of a different Mary in Matthew chapter 27, verse 56. That's Mary, the wife of Cleopas. Third, it is unlikely that Jesus would entrust his mother to the Apostle John at his crucifixion if she had other natural sons to care for her. Fourth, the word brethren has a broader meaning than blood brothers. Since ancient Hebrew had no word for cousin, it was customary to use brethren in the Bible for relationships other than blood brothers. The example of Abraham, who refers to Lot as my brother, when in fact we know from the text that Lot is Abraham's nephew. If in fact Jesus had brothers, 
Those brothers, because they're named, were very prominent Christians in the early church. In fact, one of them was a bishop. And they lived during the early church. And this teaching of the Catholic Church goes way back that Mary was a virgin before, during, and after the birth of Christ. That was a very prominent teaching. If, in fact, Jesus had brothers, and those brothers were alive and prominent Christians, they would have challenged that false teaching that Mary was a virgin, that they didn't, no mention of it. Yeah? There's a part where people come to Jesus and say their brothers and sisters are at the door or something. Right. But again, it's because the Hebrew word for brother is expansive. It can mean nephews, cousins, good friends. It can mean a lot of different things. It's not tied to blood relatives. The clinching here is that at the cross, Jesus gives Mary to John, and John is not the brother of Jesus. Back to John chapter 2, let's continue with this next section, which is the cleansing of the temple. Now, if you notice, if you read the synoptic gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they have only one Passover that Jesus makes to the temple, whereas John has three. Nothing unusual about that, because each of the authors are giving their own theological perspective of what they witness. So John wants to emphasize the Passover. In fact, he emphasizes the Jewish feasts in his gospel with this whole theme of replacement. That the Jewish feasts, like Passover, is being replaced with the Eucharist. It says in verse 13, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers at their business. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out with the sheep and oxen out of the temple, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away, you shall not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews said to him, What sign have you to show us for doing this? Jesus answered, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken forty-six years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But he spoke of the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. John puts the first trip that Jesus makes to Jerusalem for the Passover right in chapter 2 at the beginning of his gospel because he wants to emphasize that this cleansing of the temple is a continuation of what Jesus did at the Cana wedding feast. Where he changes water into wine. Now, Again, this replacement theme, he's going to say that the temple throughout the entire Old Testament and the tabernacle before it is being replaced. The temple has fallen into hard times because Caiaphas, the high priest, had allowed the Jews who were coming to the Passover feast in the temple, he allowed money to be exchanged in the temple. Previous to that, it had to take place 
in the field next to the temple. Caiaphas made a concession because, first of all, there were a lot of people coming from a long distance. They weren't going to bring a lamb all the way from Galilee because accidents can happen. Maybe the lamb breaks a leg and now you can't use it because it's not pure. And it's a lot of trouble to bring an animal all that way. So what they would do is they'd bring money and they would buy the lamb right there outside the temple. So what happened was Caiaphas allowed the outer court of the temple, which was known as the court of the Gentiles, to be used for this purpose. If Jews came with Roman coins, because they had Roman coins, they couldn't use that in the temple to buy the sheep because the Roman coins had the face of the emperor stamped on the coin, which would violate the first commandment. You can't bring that into the temple of God because it's a false image. So what they would do is take their coins and trade them in for shekels, which was the Jewish currency, and then from the shekels buy the lamb. Well, this had come to be a big business because they would be charging interest, of course, on this money exchanging. And it got out of hand so that whoever was coming into the temple was being distracted by all this commerce from the true purpose of the temple, which was to worship God. So Jesus goes into the temple and takes the whip of cords and overturns the money tables, drives out the animals, and says, take these things away, you shall not make my father's house a house of trade. When he cleanses the temple, overturns the tables and, and drives out the animals, it is a prefiguring of, first of all, a whole shift and change from the animal sacrifices of the Old Testament to this new dispensation of grace, which will be the blood of Christ shed once for all on the cross and now available through the sacraments, especially through the Mass. So it signifies this whole shift from the Old to the New, the Old Covenant to the New Covenant, right here. But it also prefigures, in a sense, that the temple will not be a physical building, but will be Christ. In fact, he says that, destroy this temple, and I will raise it up in three days. And he's referring to his body. And even when he died, the curtain tore. Right. That was another sign later on. When he dies, the, the curtain which separates the Holy of Holies from the Holy is rent from top to bottom. And that is prophetic of the whole shift from the old to the new and the destruction in 70 AD of the temple when the Romans come in under General Titus and simply destroy Jerusalem and the temple. So temple, animal, sacrifices is being replaced. The temple now is Christ and ultimately it's us. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. When we're baptized, the Spirit comes to live within us. And that's a point Paul makes again and again. So he sees us as new temple. But it's ultimately the church. Church is the new temple because the church is the body of Christ. It says here that uh, the disciples remember that he had said this. How come that after Jesus uh, resurrected, they didn't, they didn't believe it? Because they had to wait for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Once the Holy Spirit poured on the disciples, then they remembered. Then they remembered. Yeah.
And that's an excellent question. Verse 22, when therefore he was raised from the dead, that his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Turn to John chapter 14, 26. When the counselor of the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So there's the answer to your question, which is why John was able to write this gospel. Origen, who was one of the early, early commentators, says the sanctuary is the undisciplined soul filled not with animals and merchants, but with earthly and senseless attachments. Christ must expel them with the whip of his divine doctrine to make spiritual worship possible. So the obvious reference here is, since we're the temple of the Holy Spirit, how are we making sure our soul, our temple, is purified and not cluttered with all kinds of sins, addictions, and things like that that grieve the Holy Spirit? So there is that spiritual application to us. Well, we made it through chapter 2. <laughs> and let's end in prayer. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen.